0: Thanks Jordan for leading us thus far in our service. We're going to continue on in our series in 1 Corinthians and open your Bibles please this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we'll commence reading at verse 26 going into chapter 2 concluding at the end of verse 5. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised has God chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Verse 30, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And it is true, we long for you to be our vision. May we have those lenses on which are your lenses. So that we can see the word of God for what it really is. And the truth may be made plain to us. Open our eyes, Father, that we may see wondrous things of yourself. These things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Last week we commenced the section that deals with God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. We saw that God's wisdom is centered on the the word of the cross, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and we see that expression in verse 18. And um, And we had a look at man's wisdom which has all to do with intellectual ability or his own reasoning, thinking and logic etc. And this comparison was drawn by Paul to show the Corinthians and us today that the greatest blessing that man can receive is the salvation blessing that comes from God. And that is only received through the power of God's wisdom in the gospel. In contrast to the folly of depending on man-made ideas and self-confidence in those ideas. In our text, the Corinthians, we have seen, were so obsessed with their own intellectual wisdom that what they did is they chose men of their own particular liking and followed them as being their wise spiritual leaders. Nothing wrong with these men, by the way. They were good men. One of them was even Christ. And so this follow the leader mentality, what it did is began to cause disputes in the church and Paul challenges them about their overconfidence in human resources and their wisdom or their thinking. Now, this ancient setting that I've briefly described is not too different from where we are living today, folks. Not too different at all. Corinth, Corinth was a culture that was full of self-confidence. We're going to have a little bit a deeper look at the culture of Corinth later on as we go through this book. But it, one of the things was it was a self-confident culture. It promoted wealth and power and pleasure and intellectualism as being the hallmark of accomplishment and success in life. That's what it did. And so we too, here today, here this morning, live in a similar culture that is saturated with this very similar worldview. Self-esteem, self-worth, self-confidence are all seen as being the necessary ingredients for successful and rewarding lives. And like the Corinthian culture, we too can be far too impressed with our own wisdom, our own achievements and our own accomplishments. In actual fact, being impressed with that is promoted big time in our day and age. But as we saw briefly last week, where has all this confidence in human wisdom and achievement got us? Looking at our own country, looking at our own culture, where has it got us really when you look at the big picture? The country, the culture is in more moral decay than it ever was, right? The evils of society are certainly not diminishing, so where's all the wisdom and man's intellect got us? So Paul reminded the church at Corinth that though they lived in a Corinthian culture, the culture of Corinth was not to live in them. That's what He was reminding them through all this. They were to live as what? They were to live as called out saints by God's power in the Gospel. You see, they were sanctified, which is linked to the word saint, which means set apart. They were sanctified, set apart by God through the Gospel and they were to live depending on the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of men. And what they were doing is sort of going back. They were reverting. It's not as if these guys weren't saved. They were true born-again Christians. We had that right in verse 1 and 2 because they were called saints. But they were tending to lean back on their own wisdom and understanding. And so these two themes, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men, these two themes that are contrasted here, they run right throughout the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And here in verse 25, which we ended with last week, Paul makes this bold and upfront attention-grabbing statement of truth. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We read that last week. In other words, what Paul does here in verse 25, he reinforces his argument, his discussion, his teaching from another angle and he says, if it were possible for God to be foolish, which it is not, But if it were possible, God on his worst days would be far better than you are on your best days. That's what he's saying. Nothing man has or ever will have can match God's power and wisdom. So in our text today, Paul continues briefly, or or he continues to verify that God's power and wisdom is unmatched by mankind, but it is worked out in human weakness. And so first we see in 26 to verse 31 that we have read this morning, what he does is he asks the believers at Corinth, first of all, to take a good look at themselves. Take a good look at yourselves and remember the background, where you have come from and who they are now in Jesus Christ. In other words, take a good look at yourselves and see where you have come from. That's the first section. And the next section in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, Paul speaks to the Corinthians again. He says, Now I want you to get your eyes off yourself and I want you to take a good look at me. Paul was not being full of himself here. He was, as we'll see, he was wanting them to understand truth. And he asked them to remember how he ministered among them over an 18 month period, which we find that he was there in Acts 18. And so, how does he do? How does he go about this? Well, I've chopped this chapter up, or this reading today, in three parts, and um, just to make it easier to understand, he, he confronts them with first of all the puzzle of God's wisdom, the puzzle of God's wisdom. Paul here clinches his argument by firstly reminding believers at Corinth and us today to consider their calling. Okay, consider your calling. Now, this calling is not about occupations and careers and, and, and their status in society uh, or, or where they were at at the time vocationally. No, no. You see, whenever Paul uses this word calling or call, it always refers to the effectual call of God by the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures that results in redemption. Always. This particular word here. We even have it in this chapter. Saints by calling at verse 2. And they called. There's a definitive in front of the call in verse 24. they called. And the Corinthian believers in their carnal thinking, they had lost sight of this, this need of reminding and they needed reminding of who they were before being called of God. They'd lost sight of this calling. And so Paul jolts them. He becomes their memory jogger. And he gives them a reality check. A bit like James does. James, In James chapter 2, verse 1 and 9, he's, he says, God is no respecter of persons. This is where James starts, you see. And so this is what Paul was doing here. In other words, Paul says, you surely know that God did not call you to be his children because you are wealthy, brilliant, or one of the influential leaders inside of you. He didn't call you because you were anything of those people, kind of people. Paul wants to make clear that these ideas of worth that man has, are not even a box that needs to be ticked by God for His criteria of calling. As a matter of fact, those very things are what so often stumble and hinder people from sensing the need of a salvation. Right. But at the same time, at the same time, if any saint fits these categories wealthy and influential and someone and uh, maybe of more noble. If someone does fit these categories, it needs to be understood, Corinthians and us here this morning, that God saves in spite of them. God saves in spite of them, but not because of them. Not because of them. Years ago, I was always impressed when I was reading... Um, George Whitfield's biography, and he mentions a lady, and her lady was this lady's name or title was the Countess of Huntington. She was a noble lady. She lived in the 1700s. As a matter of fact, she was a very, very good friend of John Wesley and George Whitfield, and um, and she gave tremendous amount of financial support to their both their ministry, and when she was discussing her salvation and um, considering this very text that we have this morning, it's been noted down in history that this is what she said, praise God for the letter M. Because it says that not many and not not any. And so no doubt there were some, not many, in the Corinthian church who could say the same. One example is Crispus. If you go back to Acts chapter 18, you'll see that Crispus, he was a chief ruler in the synagogue. So he was a man with influence. He was a man who had respect in the society and in the culture which he lived amongst Jewish people before he was saved. But the majority of these folks in the Corinthian church, they were not the academically elite. Most were uneducated. It was not a church full of movers and shakers and influential leaders and and people who had political influence, no. By and large, most of them were from the lower ranks of society, even including the slave class. That's what the church was like. And this is why God's wisdom can be puzzling to some people. It gets complicated here for some. Why? Because God's choices are the exact opposite to what men would do if... They were given the divine prerogative to choose. For example, imagine if you were asked to launch a kingdom, right? It's your responsibility to launch a kingdom that was to supersede every other kingdom on earth. Where would we start looking? You know, I'm thinking I would be looking, first of all, to some very key people um, and certainly maybe gifted people with lots of talent maybe able-bodied people and certainly people with lots of wealth and i'd certainly be looking for the movers and the shakers of this world that's what i would naturally be inclined to to look to after all strong is strong weak is weak clever is clever in our reckoning that's right isn't it but here is where our thinking and reckoning is flipped on its head here is where the puzzle of god's choosing is in paradox to our thinking in God's scheme of things, often the strong things are, in our estimation, the weakest. And the seemingly weak things are the strongest, and the wise things of mankind are deemed by God as the most foolish. You see the paradox? But this is how God works out his redemptive purposes in the world. This is how it is. He uses his mighty power in the seemingly weak gospel. Through what? Through, again, seemingly weak vessels like ourselves. That's amazing, right? Ordinary folks. Not the movers and the shakers and the wealthy and the wise and the noble. Not necessarily. He can do if he wishes. But generally speaking, it's through the ordinary folks. This is why we need to be so careful in over-promoting individuals because of their academic achievements, their eloquence and their success as a solution to evangelize people for Christ. We need to be really careful on that. I've even said myself over the years, and I know you probably have too, or at least thought it, if only this particular person would come to faith, he or she would be a mighty force for God to bring people to Christ, basing that on who they are and their naturalness. But hear this, folks. God's power in saving people is not based on the messenger and his or her expertise, but in the power of the content of the gospel message he or she carries. That's where it lies. This is exactly how God has designed His mission on earth to work. All believers, every single one of us here this morning, are His messengers with an awesome, all-powerful message that God uses to change people within one person at a time to bring about His kingdom. This also means in God's reckoning, a simple believer who is uneducated, lacks talent, inept in speech, who has trusted Jesus Christ as Saviour and follows Him faithfully, is eternally wiser than the sophisticated, clever PhD who scoffs at the gospel. The simple simple believer has has been given what? He's been given, she's been given the mind of Christ, we're told in verse 16 of chapter 2. We've been given the mind of Christ. In other words, he or she knows about forgiveness, we know about something of God's love, something of His grace, something of His mercy, we know about life and hope and we know about God Himself, right? But the unregenerate, the unsaved PhD knows nothing beyond his what? Beyond his own learning, his own books, his own skill, his own experience. He knows nothing about life here and beyond, hence he can be only viewed as foolish. You got the picture? The power and wisdom of God is in the gospel, folks. This is, this is God's way. He chooses the foolish things, the weak things, the base things, the despised things that, that are not. All in order what, to, to shame the wise and to shame the strong and to nullify the things that are. We have that in verses 27 and 28. In other words, although man measures greatness and success by many standards, such as intelligence and power and wealth and prestige, etc., God places these human achievements at the bottom of his pile when it comes to calling men and women to faith with the gospel. They count for nothing when it comes to turning sinners into saints. They count for nothing. The despised, the pathetically weak, the contemptible gospel by the world's standards is what God uses. And that baffles the world. But dear friend, may it never ever baffle us, right? They cannot see its wisdom no matter how eloquently it is presented. Why is that? It's because they're spiritually spiritually blind and they're consumed with their own self-confidence. After all, who needs a cross? Who needs a saviour? Who needs forgiveness? I have all I need in my own achievement. This is the world's language, right? This is the unregenerate's language. Before they've been touched by the Spirit of God. As someone has said of the Gospel, God reveals the greatness of His power by demonstrating that it is the world's nobodies that are His somebodies. Consider your calling, brethren. May we this morning, nobodies, all of us, nobodies, may we who are now somebodies, got that? We are now somebodies in God's estimation. That's what matters, right? May we consider our calling and be brought back to the foot of the cross. We often need that. And may there we again be freshly enamored with God's love for us in and through Jesus Christ who willingly paid the price for our sin and by believing in that cross work we are redeemed, we're justified, we're reconciled to God and we're set apart to start to be saints. Wonderful truth, amen. But why has God chosen to demonstrate his wisdom this way? Why has he done this? This comes to our second point, the purpose of God's wisdom. So we've had the puzzle of God's wisdom. Now we see the purpose of God's wisdom. We see this in verses 29 to 31. The answer to this question is pretty clear. It says that no man should boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, God demonstrates his wisdom through the gospel so that he may receive all the glory for our salvation, is all of us doing. So that he may receive all the glory. That's the answer, the purpose of God's wisdom. You go to the book of Ephesians, where Paul writes to them, and in describing God's plan of salvation, three times he inserts in that first chapter, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. Three times. And if you're a good Bible student, you know when something is repeated, you've got to be important, right? And here it is. And so this is the primary purpose for God's power demonstrated in the gospel, His glory. And we dare not and we cannot in any way, shape or form claim any of that, folks. We cannot. Our salvation is not based on our salvation is not based on, on gospel power plus something else. It's not based on God's wisdom plus our good living, God's wisdom plus our prayers, or God's wisdom plus our church attendance, or our morals, or our tithing, or our confessions. No. In other words, no man, even with all his intellect, all his social status, all his wealth, or his nobility, or his good living either before or after salvation, should ever dare brag about his position or her position in Christ. We cannot do that. Why? Simply this. Because there is absolutely nothing we can offer to God in and of ourselves. There is nothing that we can help, we can or to add or even kickstart our acceptance to God. We've got nothing. The text clarifies this by saying... In verse thirty, see that there, but by his doing. By his doing. It doesn't say by his doing, plus something else. No, by his doing. Paul wrote a similar thing in in Second Corinthians chapter four and seven. This is what he said there. But we, he's speaking of believers here, to the church at Corinth, same church. But we have this treasure. What's he talking about? What's the treasure? The treasure is the power. Of God and the Gospel, it says. But we have this treasure, treasure in earthen vessels. What does earthen vessels speak of? I know if it was an, I know what would happen to them very quickly. They'd be smashed on the tile floor, and I believe that's what it's here for: earthen vessels. And that's us, folks. We're fragile, right? We make mistakes, yet we are very fragile. We've got nothing beautiful in us, as it were, to present the gospel in a more attractive way than God presents it. So Paul says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. There it is. 2 Corinthians four seven. So the Corinthian saints, just like us, needed to realize that... They were who they were by God's grace alone through faith alone and nothing else. That's why none of us can claim to be someone who God delighted in. I often think of Abraham like this, you know. I've got into discussions with people and think, oh, God chose Abraham because he was a good guy. There had to be something in him. No, 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 no. Abraham was an outright heathen just like all the rest of them. But God in his sovereignty chose Abraham puzzle we don't know let God look after his doing but this is God's doing and we cannot claim that God delighted in us and because he delighted or saw something of worth in us he chose us no Ephesians 2 1 tells us exactly what we were every single one of us were dead in trespasses and sin and I don't think any more horrible a situation can be than that dead and trespasses and sin And in pure grace, by the effective working power of his gospel, he called us to faith and repentance. I love how the old old hymn puts it down. It says this, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Hence, to God be the glory, great things he has done, right? You'd agree with that, Sharon? Amen. But there's a second aspect of why we that we see connected here to the purpose of God's wisdom is that he has also has a salvation blessing in store for his people. So it's not only for God's glory, but there's a spin-off here. There's a salvation blessing for God's people. We see this in verse 30 as well. The Father's power and wisdom in the gospel not only glorifies Him, but it also blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Nothing more to be added. Have yeah, that in Ephesians 1:2. God gives us a complete package. God's wisdom instantly at salvation, and from then on, progressively replaces our wisdom. I love it to see when Christians grow in the wisdom and the knowledge of God, in the grace and the knowledge of God. Jordan used a great expression this morning. When Christians grow and their human wisdom is replaced by God's wisdom, they start seeing things, everything in life. They see their marriage, they see their family, they see their work situation through God's eyes. That's how we want it to be, right? And of course you'll never see things through God's eyes unless you're using your eyes to read the Word, to study the Word. That's what it is to become more and more like Christ. And so here we have the spiritual blessing where, where our, our human wisdom is progressively replaced by our wisdom. But first of all, He does impute wisdom to us in order to understand the Gospel. This is an initial thing. This is something that Where God instantly kickstarts, I'll use that expression, our trust and faith in Him. He makes us wise to salvation. He removes the scales, as it were, from our eyes so that we may see truth. We're no longer blinded to the truth, but God removes that blindness so we can see the truth and the beauty of God's plan of salvation and the only way of being saved. And it dawns upon us. That's God's wisdom being imputed to us. And for some people it takes a long time, but some people it happens instantly. Then we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We repent. We're made wise into salvation. And we also see His righteousness imputed to us as well. This is kind of an instantaneous thing, but I'm just sort of progressively putting it out here, like the Apostle Paul has, so I've got a good kudos to follow. His righteousness is imputed to us. You see, our righteousness is taken, our unrighteousness is taken away, it's buried, it's dealt with, never to be remembered again. But now we have an eternal righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're made right with God. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so when God looks upon us, He doesn't see a patched-up sinner. No, no, no. He sees us as being perfect as His Son. Isn't that a beautiful truth? But flowing out of this wisdom as well, not only does God impute to us wisdom, and not only does God impute to us righteousness, but we see also that God sanctifies us. He sets us apart from all others. We are the called. We are His saints now and forever. I love that. It really warms my heart to worship God. How can I not want to see things through God's eyes when I hear that truth and understand it? But then that's not all. That's not all. In His wisdom, He also blesses us now in the future with eternal redemption. You see that word, redemption? At the end of verse 30. So God accepts, this is where God accepts the price that his son paid at Calvary for your and my sin and and accepts it as a complete once forever for all price. And he saves us on the basis of that. He's redeemed us. He's paid the price. But can you see the sequence here? Can you see the sequence? Let's track through it again just briefly. um, but, But through this here. In God's wisdom, those who are called are made wise, right? The scales are removed. We see God's way of salvation as being the only way. We're made wise to his way of salvation. Who are then made right with God. That's when his righteousness is imputed to us. But those whom are made right with God, he also sets apart, he sanctifies as saints. And those whom he sets apart, he redeems immediately and to know the fullness of God's redemption that is becoming. So many of these things are progressive. Yes, are we, have we been redeemed? Absolutely. We are redeemed right here and now. But we don't know nothing yet, folks. That redemption is going to be fully complete one day when these old bodies that need heart operations like Florence here and my body that's carrying too much weight because I eat too much, etc. Uh, is going to be redeemed. It's not going to get old anymore. No more arthritis. No more sin. That's the most important thing at all. In the flesh I have the capacity still to sin. That's going to be done away with. That is redemption complete. Folks, God's wisdom in the gospel deals with our past, our present and our future. Every true believer falls into that position. It's wonderful, right? (coughs) Surely we can respond like Paul does here, right here. But what Paul does here is he quotes Jeremiah the prophet. One of my favourite verses. But let him who boasts boast of this: that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and again, Paul he mentions to the Galatians in um, chapter six, verse fourteen. <coughs> Excuse me, man. That voice is really caught. This is what he says in, in six fourteen. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an awesome verse, isn't it? That one there in Galatians 6.14. Paul also says in Romans 11.33, this is when he he just looks at all the truth and all this wonderful truth that we've been talking about. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That's our response too, surely, isn't it? So we've had the puzzle of God's wisdom. We've had the purpose of God's wisdom. And now finally we come to the proclamation of God's wisdom. We see this in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2. In this section, Paul adds further fuel to his argument by calling the Corinthians okay now get your eyes off yourself and don't consider your calling so much but you consider me you take a look good look at me and he asked them to think back and remember how he conducted himself when he was with them here he's a memory jogger again and this is what he says i did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of god for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should rest on the wisdom should, your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. You see Paul reminds them that his proclamation of god 's wisdom, the testimony of God to the Corinthians was not proclaimed with impressive words of human reasoning. That's what he tells them. His ability to be eloquent and using clever rhetoric and philosophical argument for the gospel was purposely held at bay. And by the way, Paul could have used those if he had wanted to. Remember, he was a, a studier of the law under the feet of Gallimille, the one of the top professors of his day. And one of the things that he would have studied would be rhetoric and logic. Jews are really good at that. And so Paul could have used those things if he had chosen to. But we read here that he was determined to know nothing. That is, he purposely refused to modify and manipulate the gospel to make it more humanly attractive. You got that? He understood the power and the wisdom of God to save people one person at a time was purely in the message and not in the ability of the human messenger. We get it all wrong these days in so many circles, don't we folks? We get it all so, so wrong. But then again, just in case you think about swinging the pendulum in this, way to the other side, which often happens when we confronted with some truth Paul was not a guy who just punched out a whole lot of cold hard facts about Jesus Christ in some monotone voice like he was reading a dictionary no you ever read a dictionary pretty good reading sometimes but it's pretty boring he didn't do that he was not some robot who monotonously spewed out information with no passion and no zeal and logical argument in his presentation. No, he wasn't like that. You might say, how do you know? I know because we told him Acts 18 verses 4 and 5. When he was in Corinth, this is what it says. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks... And Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews Jews, that Jesus was the Christ. The words reasoning, persuading and testifying all carry the idea that Paul was emotionally and intellectually involved in proclaiming God's wisdom. He was devoted to the word. That's a very important phrase here. He was devoted to the word. Not to some clever salesman type method of engineering the gospel. No, no, no. His reasoning and logic began and ended with the scriptures. After all, he knew that this wisdom that was entrusted to him, like this wisdom is entrusted to every one of us who are believers, was the only vehicle that God uses to save people from hell and bring people to a glorious heaven. He knew that. So how dare he use some human or rely on, depend on, some human intellectual uh, reasoning. He knew that human understanding by itself never understands the wisdom of God resulting in saving faith. He knew that. Why? Because... It is only ever spiritually discerned. We have that in 14 of this chapter 2. Paul was adamant that the Corinthians understand that his words were not in persuasive words of human wisdom. He wanted to see and he, he knew that they understood that his words were a sweet persuasion, can I say, of the Holy Spirit resulting in their conversions. We see that in verse 4. The power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God persuaded them as Paul devoted himself to the word of the cross, the gospel. We also see Paul proclaim God's wisdom in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You see that in verse 3. As I was looking at this, I remember once when in Jerusalem, James and um, Loreley and my wife, you all remember this, I was on Ben Yehuda Street. Ben Yehuda Street, for those who don't know, is the inn street in modern Jerusalem. That's outside the old city. And I was in the street uh, and had the responsibility of preaching the gospel to a whole lot of anti-Christian, Jesus-hating, hostile Jews and Israelis. And the leader of our team, he had done this. He was an old warrior. He had done this day after day and for weeks experiencing the amnesty and the rejection, the despising and even one day when I was there having the scriptures ripped out of his hands and trashed in front of him. Now it was my turn. It was my turn to preach. How would I handle this opportunity? How would I, how would I stand under fire? How would I handle rejection, verbal abuse and hatred? How would I handle the gospel of God's grace that alone can save these lost people one person at a time? How would I handle it? In much weakness and in fear and trembling, I took the Bible in my hands and preached the gospel not really knowing what the outcome would be. My dear friends, the Apostle Paul at this stage of coming to Corinth he'd been beaten he'd been imprisoned he'd been abused he'd been kicked out of two towns escaping with only his life so in weakness and in fear and much trembling he came and preached at the corinth that's one way to look at this text but i believe that there's a more accurate way in weakness. You got that? In weakness. That is, in the weakness of the gospel message, which is really the power of God. Paul came with nothing else in a spiritual toolkit. What a man. Nothing else. No gimmicks, no entertainment, no crowd softness, and fear and much trembling. He bought the gospel. Was he trembling? Not for his life, not for his own, only for his own adequacies, but fearful and much trembling, knowing that the gospel also might be rejected. And he knowing that this would result in terrible consequences, eternal consequences for those people who rejected the truth of God's word. And in fear and much trembling, for these people. That's why I believe God came to his side and said, Paul, don't fear, for I have much people in this city. My dear people, why did Paul do this? Why did Paul give so much attention to God's wisdom that the word of the cross and all its seemingly weakness, seeming weakness was proclaimed God's way? Why did he do that? The answer is found in verse five that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's why. Simple, right? My dear people, what is your faith resting on this morning? Is it in the power of the cross of Jesus Christ? I trust it is. Maybe it's on your own ideas of Christianity or your own ideas of reason or logic, or maybe you're thinking that, well, I'm not going to come to Christ, I'm not going to put my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not going to put my life on the line for Him yet, because, 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 that's your own reasoning and your own logic kicking in, you're putting your own reasoning, your own thinking, about what God has said. Come to Christ. And those who are believers here this morning, may we consider our calling and afresh, praise God. Why? For our boast is in none else but Christ alone. Amen? Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father this morning, we thank you for your gospel of grace. Will Father, bring each one of us to the foot of the cross again. And may we be caught up, taken by the beauty of your love and holiness as we who were sinners have been now redeemed. May we long, even as believers, to have the culture's scales removed from our eyes and may we see life in all its complexities through your eyes. Teach us, we pray. May we look to your wisdom and not our own. So, Lord, help us, we pray, throughout this week as we face the realities of life, the ordinary things of life, protect us and watch over us and use us as weak vessels who have within us such rich treasure, the power of the gospel. Father, we just thank you for this time together. We bless your name together. And the people of God said, Amen.